Hi, welcome to She Says Says with the Drum Podcast. My name is Sunu Singh, your host today. I'm very excited because I have one of my heroes, Asma Khan, here with me today. It's chef and owner of Darjeeling Express and the first British chef to appear on Netflix Chef's Table in 2019. Hello, Asma, and thank you for being here. Thank you very much. Um, Asma, you have a rather unusual story as a chef because you're not a trained chef. Um, and it's in the last two years uh, we have been hearing so much buzz around both Darjeeling Express and about you as well. So tell us a little bit about your story because you are a, are a trained lawyer, aren't you? History is my great passion. I wanted to study history at Cambridge. And my father said, oh, no, no, you know, you're not going to get a good job. So I decided to do law because that's how you get a good job. And uh, But I, I began my degree at King's College in London because by which time my husband decided he wanted to move here. But I always knew cooking was my calling. So I did a PhD while I had both my kids. And I hated teaching. I was really nervous because I was absolutely convinced that everyone in the room knew more than I did. And, you know, and I, it just didn't make sense when, you know, if you dread something or you get nervous about it, it's not, you know, the sense of joy that you're going to start. I get this every morning when I cook in the restaurant. And I'm so glad I realized that this is not what I want to do. But I'm very smart. I kept quiet about it. So I kept, I waited till I finished my PhD because this was not the time to have the conversation because everyone would say, oh, you'll never finish the PhD. Uh, and, you know, you always, I think as women, you always feel insecure that people think, you know, ah, you know, you're a lightweight, you know, you don't, you know, you don't have it in you to complete something. You change your mind. Because you hear these things being said about women all the time, I was very driven to finish my PhD and do a really good PhD. I had a great viva. There were no changes. And, you know, I I left that room on fire because I'd done it. And that night, I actually registered the, the food company, Darjeeling Express. Because for me, my, you know, like when you go on these train journeys in India, Pakistan, you can literally see the tracks changing, uh, you know, when you're going. I had, that was a space I knew I had to get to when I would change tracks because I wanted to cook. And, uh, yeah, so I just then announced to everyone that I'm not going to teach. I don't want to research. I don't want to take a job in the House of Lords. I want to cook. You you talk about your sense of accomplishment and yeah. also your sense of passion for cooking. So is it always something that you did because Darjeeling Express and all the success that came after, that was in your 40s after you had yeah, the, your yeah. children? I knew cooking was my calling, but I, I started my business when I was in my early 40s. But I've, I've been doing this for six years. I've been cooking for six years and I did a pop-up. I did supper clubs. I cooked a lot for charity. And uh, it is, I I never felt challenged. I never felt I'd made a mistake. It's, And I was never scared that I was doing the wrong thing. Now when I look back, I think I'm completely stupid because <laughs> it was so tough and everybody was so negative about what I was doing. Uh, I had no support from, you know, people who uh, I thought would support me. And I can understand why you know, people in my, especially the girls in my family who had not been allowed to go to college, who didn't have the opportunities I did, who didn't have a liberal husband, who would, you know, 
you know, my husband didn't care whether I wanted to do anything, what I wore. You know, I'd done a PhD. I lived in Cambridge. For them, there was this feeling that, you know, you're in paradise. You know, you're, all the shackles have been taken off you. And the only thing we're allowed to do is cook. And that's what you want to do. You're in London, which is like for them paradise. And I, I, I used to feel guilty about that, that I let down all these girls who were married off in their 18, when they were 18 and 19, who had children by the time they were 21, who were you know housewives and good daughter-in-laws and good wives and cooked for family, big family feasts. Because they had to. Yeah. And I don't think they ever anyone asked them, do you want to cook? Do you love what you're doing? Does it excite you to cook anything? I, I don't remember ever this conversation. We just ate the food they made. That's it. Some of them didn't even say thank you to them. And I felt somehow that this was just, you know, I let the side down. You know, my, my cousin called me Ratatouille, and I cried because she told me, you're like that little mouse who cooks. That's all you're going to be. You're like, you know, not going to get uh, anywhere. Uh, you know, if you do law, you'll become famous and uh, people will respect you. First, I need to respect myself. And if I had done things because that's what was expected and what the family thought I would bring honor to the family by becoming, you know, a lawyer and, you know, doing really well as the first female PhD in my family. Uh, but this is not me. And I didn't want to live this life for others, because that's what so many of us have to do, that we live the life others tell us, that this is how you live your life. And can, I, can I ask if the family, that, that side of the family has come around now that you've got the, the sort of fame and respect as I thought you should? The biggest pr- support I had was my mother-in-law, who's an absolute rock star. My husband was the most against this. This is because it kind of, you know, he was excited because he understands what academia is. And the stuff I was doing was interesting. He wanted me to teach, you know, otherwise, you know, do research. I'm probably one of the few people who can rewrite the laws of the constitution of this country and the coronation oath because I worked on church and state. And he just, I guess, you know, he looked at it from an academic point of view that, you know, publish your book, teach, you know, spread the word out of what you do. Uh, Why do you have to go and cook dal instead? Yeah. No, because for him, it didn't make sense. It didn't make sense. Anyone who has a Bengali mother-in-law will know this. They are formidable. And if they're on your side, you can battle with the whole world. My mother-in-law was incredibly kind. She just said, you do what you want. Tell me what you want to do, I'll support you. So that kind of kept my husband in reign. My mother was very supportive. But you know, I think the rest of the family, everybody liked me. I'm one of those kids everybody liked. I have no... I'm I'm very good at you know uh, handling all the family different camps. So I'm I'm in no one's camp. Everyone is very nice to me, and uh, so I think nobody wanted to take me on directly. But I mean, I heard what people were saying behind my back. So um, you've obviously um, you obviously know I'm a big fan of Darjeeling Express. Feels like home to me. I absolutely love the food. Thank you. Uh, that you serve and I see you around a lot of time actually serving to the the people and you know you say that I'm one of those people who's in nobody's camp 
you are a storyteller, I think. Yes. Um, and you talk about your love for history as well. And I still remember this night when I was in the restaurant with my American friend and we were having the apricot dish. Ah, uh, yes. And you were telling us a story about the Afghans and the horses and the deserts. And I can still remember my friend Kristen scooping up those apricots in her mouth and saying, hmm, I can smell the desert. <laughs> And I, I just wonder this, this whole thing of you being a storyteller. Do you think that's what has kind of, because um, you are brilliant. You go from table to table, telling people where things are coming from, telling people why you don't cook okra, for instance. Tell us why don't you cook okra? Yeah, because I, I, you know, just think that you know this is one way of reducing the carbon footprint on my uh, menu. But more than that, after a 13 hour flight, I feel horrible. Can you imagine what the okra feels like? <laughs> and then to be cooked and served, I think it's unacceptable. You know, and also, I'm a, my father's a farmer. It is destroying us. Growing food for the Western market is destroying all the livelihoods of farmers. Because if it is not the perfect size, it is rejected. And they're not growing the high protein dals that their family lives on. And the money is not being made by the farmer, but by the middleman. And then the supermarkets. It is, I, I never buy anything from a supermarket that has been flown in. That's my little protest because I just think it is so wrong. Yes, I do go to Wembley and pick up vegetables, the big ones, you know, that are not packaged, that are not all the same size. Because that is a different thing. But I would not put it in my, my restaurant because... This is one way that I can pay homage to the land that has allowed me to sow the seed of Dajani Express and grown it to where it is. I am on the land which has embraced me. The least I can do is cook the produce of this land. And that's why I, I, I only have British uh, produce. I try to get as much organic stuff as I can. And it's very nice. You know, we use uh, a lot of beetroot that comes from the fence near near Cambridge. And the, it arrives in these huge sacks with a lot of, you know, mud. And these are silly things that make me happy. Because, you know, it's not, it's it's dirty and it's dusty and we wash them all. But this is, it connects me to a soil which is not my land. But this is one way that I can connect and pay homage to where I am right now, to this land that has given me so much. See, there's there's another kind of uh, obviously you you you're telling your story, but there's another very beautiful narrative that you weave around you know things you know and things you love and and the things that you do. Do you think that kind of uh, it, that's what has fed into your success, and that's why, for instance, being the first British chef, not the first Indian chef, not the first um, uh, London chef, but the first British chef to be uh, featured on the Netflix chef's table. How did that come about, do you think? I think they they probably saw clips of me telling stories, I suspect, because uh, they did a lot of research on me. And uh, one of them claimed to have seen a handheld uh, from a video clip. Uh, someone had done this on the phone in a student union where I talked about, you know, the importance of someone eating with me, otherwise I wouldn't let them listen to my music, eat my food, wear my clothes. You know, you cannot appropriate all of this. You have to first break bread with me. You know, there are 21 verses in the Bible on breaking bread. In the Quran, it's full of, you know, references to food and sharing food with strangers. Why are we not doing it here? But you people are happy to take away 
other things, but not eat with each other. And uh, so I think they they saw all of that, and they must have been uh, a bit surprised because uh, it's not just my voice, it's my accent. I am the accent of a immigrant. My accent gives away that my roots are somewhere else, that what is nourishing me and keeping me strong is not just the soil of this country, but of another place. And also in my dreams and my imagination, in the music I listen to, in the aromas in my food, I am fed by something else, another heritage. And I guess that's what they were looking for because I'm off here and I'm also not from here. And where would you say is home when you talk about food? You know, what, what does, is it about the memories it evokes or is it about the people or is it, or is it just about the food that you cook? No, home, home is not about, you know, bricks and mortar and walls and doors. It is about emotions, you know. So for me, home is always where I feel complete. And, you know, of course, you know, I'm very lucky. My parents are alive. So in that, you know, in the courtyard where my parents live, uh, that for me is home because that is when I am with those I love the most. And it is strange because I do have children. My children heard me saying this once and said that don't we count. I said, you count a lot, but they're not going to get, get what I'm trying to say because they will at some point. They will at some point. But they don't understand, you know, what parents mean and what my mother means to me because she is someone who also taught me how to cook. And all her kind of unfinished dreams and her long you know, nights of silence, of things she could never do, I am doing now. I'm welling up now, because uh, there's also, <laughs> uh, um, as a fellow immigrant, um, can, I, um, can I ask um, this, and also because you said you're an academic lawyer, this sort of whole rhetoric around immigration in the context of, of Brexit. What are, what are your views on, on that? It is I gut-wrenching to see you know, people, you know, immigration and, you know, outsiders being used as, you know, these fear-mongering terms to hate. And I cannot understand, you know, I will not let anyone hate me till they know me, till they sit down on my table and eat with me. And what it has done is build these walls. I'm really, really sad because what it has done you know, my children are 19 and 14. It has taken away their future and their choices. And one of the things that, you know, the Netflix uh, does is that it has allowed, you know, everybody to see, you know, that in this country there are also immigrants who, for me, I am, I will be what I want to be. You do not put me in a box. You don't draw lines around me and say you are this or you are that. I will be Muslim, I'm an immigrant, I'm a woman, and I'll be whatever I choose to be at this moment. You know, your heritage is something wonderful. It's not something to be ashamed of. And this is what I'm trying to do with the restaurant. You know, I have an all-women kitchen. Yes, I was about to ask that. That's, yeah. you know, in terms of choices, uh, is was that like a purposeful-led choice or or you just had to do it or it happened without you meaning to do it? It happened without me meaning to do it. I mean, I could easily now say, oh, I planned this all along. I didn't. 
I didn't even think that, you know, I was doing something unusual by having an all-women kitchen. This is, for me, it felt like home. You know, I there is this kind of sense of completeness, which is so important because when I moved to this country, I felt hollow. I felt hollow in this very cold, very barren land. And, you know, I was wearing shalwar kameez because that's the only clothes I had. And the wind just cut cut through me in like slices. And I was just thinking that this is hell. I will never, this can never be home. And I realized I'd made such a huge mistake to leave everything that was warm and comforting. But, you know, 28 years down the line, I have created a home for others who can come to Darjeeling Express. And it doesn't mean that you need to come from South Asia. A lot of people who are not from there, who are Europeans or Africans, who come in and tell me, I'm not sure why I felt I came home. I created a home, not just for myself, because that is so selfish if you create a little bubble where you are at peace. I want to open the doors to others. You know, the the women that you um, employ in your kitchen, they don't come from a cooking background either. No. Is this about giving women second chance? What What is it about? I think the the fact is that, you know, I, I'm a self-taught cook and, you know, I... I I just watched and I learned and my mother would hold my hand a lot and you know pick up make me pick up things you know by touch and these women did exactly the same thing I held their hand and said you know pick it up like this you know it, this is how it should feel because there's no other way of teaching our cuisine unless you know how it feels and you hold it and you touch it and you smell it you cook from your heart you cook from your soul you know and I'm, I struggle because I need to be barefoot when I cook and I'm not allowed by health and safety now to cook barefoot because in the true Indian tradition, you didn't wear shoes. I felt, I felt so rooted barefoot. So yeah, I still take my shoes off when I get out of the kitchen just to feel the ground. I need to feel the ground. So do all the women. People are always amused when they see all of us coming out, you know, taking our shoes off because somehow, you know, you feel trapped in a shoe when you're cooking. I don't know. I just, I never learned to cook wearing a shoe. Well, I never learned to cook full stop. So what <laughs> is your favorite recipe? So I, I guess my favorite dish would be a chicken chop, which is a Calcutta Mughlai dish, uh, which is very much like a korma. It's very straightforward. You don't, you just add chili, a bit of chilies, but you add coriander powder and yogurt and brown, brown onions, garlic ginger. And... Uh, touch of nutmeg and mace and saffron. It's a very delicate uh, chicken, but it's very, very tasty. Well, we'll have to come to the um, to the restaurant. And there's another restaurant. There's a little cafe. We're just opening a pop-up cafe uh, just downstairs, just on Carnaby uh, Street. Because, I don't know, my whole life I want to run a tea shop. Tea in India is the great leveler. It didn't matter whether you were rich or poor. Everybody had, chi- you know, chai. Chai. Chai and a chai dukan. So, you, you know, you, people, you know, in, in the Mercedes would be sitting, but they'd get their chai from the chai dukan. And I loved that, that the simple tea was what was, is when everybody got together. And it is so much part of my politics and, you know, my passion. I want to have this open space where everybody, respective of who you are and what your journey has been, when you enter through the space, I want you to feel like you've 
someone has embraced you, that this is a space where you are the same as a person sitting next to you, where differences of color, religion, gender evaporate. So I'm just like super excited because it's, uh, it's going to be fun. I'm really excited about it. There's a charity that you're setting up as well. So tell us a little bit about that as well, please. The charity is uh, called Second Daughters Limited. Uh, we are trying to celebrate the birth of second girls. I am a second daughter. It turned out that everyone in my kitchen is also, they're also second daughters. Wow. And uh, this is, you know, difficult for us because it you need to challenge your family's attitude towards the birth of a second girl. And we all have stories about that. Yeah, and the thing is that, you know, I I don't remember what anyone told me or how it happened, but I was made to feel like I was unwanted. I was constantly told every time I got into trouble, the servants would tell me, your mother wept when you were born. No one came to see you, and everyone was so sad. And I would go to family weddings, uh, and people would point to me and say, bus, as an is that it? I was so angry. I don't want to be a bus. I don't want to be that it. I want to set the world alight. I used to be so angry. I used to go home and I used to imagine my name in lights, in big lights, my entire name. I wanted to count. And because the thing that they keep telling you is that no one celebrated your birth, one of the things that we're going to do with the charity is that we pay to celebrate the birth of the a second, second girl, second daughter. Because if you send fireworks, some kid is going to set it off. And, you know, we just send sweets. But I just want the girl to be able to say to those who push her around that, no, you celebrated my birth. Because it's, especially in deprived families, second girls are the ones who are never sent to school, who get a road deal, and they're the ones who are married off often to older men because they can't afford the dowry. They somehow manage to have a, 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 a dignified wedding for the older girl. But the second girl is often sent off. And it's a cycle of poverty, deprivation, and violence. And this happens disproportionately to second girls. And as a second daughter, I'm, I just think that I, my, my scars will never heal. The scars of the women who work with me will never heal. But at least... I can stop the scars from somewhere else. Thank you, Asma, for all your stories, storytelling, not just through food, but also your tales of your business and your experiences. And a huge thank you to our partners, Scramble Studios and Frank and Lively. This is Sunu, and keep listening to She Says Says with the Drum Podcast. Bye. <laughs>